Okay, we're about ready. Um, we had a, just a couple of questions left, but <clears throat> during the break, someone reminded me that a way to look at these particular needs, fantasies, and wounds of yours, the, the way you can tell that they are not to be taken literally, but are metaphorical for something deeper inside that you might be afraid to know about because all through your life, it seemed like that territory, that province inside you, was unsafe, was thought of as inappropriate by others, and certainly was unwelcome. The ones that are in this category are the ones that, have, that hang on and don't seem to be able to be fulfilled. The kinds of needs that just keep hanging on and you just also can never quite get enough, those are the white rabbit ones that are meant to lead you down in rather than keep trying to fulfill it. This is going to be a losing game. Oh, I can't fulfill it with this one. Maybe I can fulfill it with that one. Uh, oh, here's somebody who can fulfill it. And that then you would lose the ultimate um, the, the, the ultimate purpose, the reason it's hanging on is not hanging on because it's awaiting fulfillment. It's hanging on because before it can be fulfilled, it requires a journey down into yourself. Then when someone looks at you as one who finally knows himself and loves himself, the kind of person who's attracted to that will be of a higher level fulfillment possibility-wise than the kind of people you met when you were just taking all this literally. You follow what I mean? You're upgrading <laughs> your, the playing field. There was somebody who had the microphone. Okay. Hi. And you had a question. Yeah, the question, I think you're kind of answering it with this last page here, but it was originally speaking into the part of compassion when we're actually working with folks in our, maybe in our more inner circle that aren't meeting our five A's. And so it was basically speaking to that. And this is going pretty deep on the personal end, which is ultimately what you're saying, the core of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, that fits. It's the needs that can't even quite be put into words, the fantasies that can't ever quite be fulfilled, at least not in any ongoing way, and the wounds that never heal. They are meant for more than just the standard self-help style of how do you fulfill your needs and fantasies and heal your wounds? They're bigger than that. 
they want to take you to a deeper place. They don't want just to get taken care of. This is my best way of explaining it. Make sense? Because we have just as much depth inside of us as in Shakespeare. Really. We all have this, this um, deep and uh, wonderfully, um, wonderfully ex- ever-expanding universe. And we just spend all our time on the surface of it. We never... Um, go deeply and we will never go deeply as long as everything is literal <clears throat> you had a question yeah uh, we, we'll need the microphone okay let's just have one more question and then we'll go on to the next part Uh, You want to just pass it over? Hello? Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you could comment about spiritual bypass. My own experience is that I found that mindfulness can lend itself to that. And I had a non-dual teacher who said, you know, Probably all of us will have some trips that we'll go to our grave with, and that's okay. You don't have to resolve them. Live in spite of them. Put your focus elsewhere. And it sounds good, but... Okay, yes, that's a good question, because I did want to go to spirituality next anyway. And spiritual bypass would mean, oh, I can just have a spiritual practice and I'll be fine. I never have to work on my psychological stuff. That's spiritual bypass. And of course, it won't work that way because we are so much a combination of um, both elements. So from a psychological perspective, We have certain work on ourselves that helps us fulfill our goals in life. And then all the while and at the same time, we have spiritual orientation. Instead of work, it becomes practices. Instead of fulfill our goals, it becomes an enlightened way of living. And the helpers psychologically are the self-help movement and the helpers spiritually are our Buddhist teachers, of course. 
But in addition to this part of the distinction, there's another dimension, which is that our psychological work requires a certain effort. And when you expend this effort, it leads to results. So I'm going to give a simple example. Let's say you're a very passive person and your therapist suggests you take a course in assertiveness, assertiveness training. And you go to this course and you really get into it and you do all the exercises and you really put effort into it. And as a result, you definitely become more assertive. But when you get to the other side, you can do all the spiritual practices in the world and notice that the enlightenment has not happened. Because it kind of has a life of its own. <clears throat> so that's where you'd have to have a trust in what in Christian terms is called grace. By grace, I mean the gift dimension of life. That our life is not only about achieving through effort, but receiving by grace. What is grace? The special gift that gives you a leg up. The special gift that deepens your view or experience. The special gift that brings about synchronicity, unusual and meaningful coincidences that lead you to meet exactly the people who give you the opportunity to walk more toward enlightenment, to fulfill your goals. In other words, helps you on both sides. So I did not want to end without um, noticing this, that the work is not only something we do, it's something that comes to us. St. Teresa of Avila, the great Spanish mystic, she had a good way of explaining this. She said, I love my garden and I tend it by putting in the effort to draw water from the well and water it. That part is my effort and it shows results. But every once in a while, it rains. <laughs> and I didn't make that happen. That's the gift from above. And that supplements, that joins in with what I do. And I can trust that it will happen sometimes, but I can't make it happen. That's a great description of this, of grace. You are continually trusting that something can come your way that might, shall we say, expand on your efforts or even open you to a whole new possibility that you haven't even imagined. 
and you didn't make it happen. It just came to you uh, as a kind of gift. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to call it grace. You can just say that there's, that there's a part of our story that has the gift dimension in it. So when Dorothy was in Oz and she met the three friends, those were the three graces. Those were gifts, helpers who want to join her on her journey, assisting forces. In fact, grace is the archetype of the assisting force. Call upon the force, you know, Luke Skywalker. That force is grace. You don't just learn how to use this sword. You call upon the force also. We can call upon, can't make it happen, but we can certainly invoke this. It takes an enormous amount of humility to admit that there is such a thing as grace. Because most of us want to believe it's all about me and what I do. I made this happen. To be the opposite of uh, the phrase from the Bible, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. I don't deserve all the kudos. Kudos are shared. I put in the effort, but, and by the way, the effort doesn't make grace happen. The drawing of the water from the well does not make it rain. It only joins. So this part, the trust in grace, we couldn't get from Psychology 101. It's not in that book. It's not in our training as therapists. This part has to come from a spirituality that is no longer only practices. It's a combination of practices and graces. Everybody follow? Okay, so let's have a couple of questions on this right over here. Where is the microphone? Can you bring it up to this person? Thanks. Uh, so I just want to, I want to quote scripture for a second because it'll help me say what I want to say. Roshid Chachma Yirat Adonai. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, but it also means awe. So, so when you're talking about grace and uh, throughout today, I'm thinking that the way God speaks to me loudest in my life has been when I'm like shaking and shuddering because the moment's so beautiful and I can't, oh, I feel often like the poem, which I really appreciate, the poem by George Herbert. I feel unworthy to witness what's happening in front of me. And, and uh, so the word abashed is a beautiful word for me, but it doesn't exactly mean shyness, and it's not shame-based exactly either, though shame is part of it. And that, for me, is like, it's 
I mean, sometimes I find myself responding to your teachings saying, yes, love, but it's not just love. But that's okay, because it could just be a different form of the tree of life, a different energy of love. But that's just a question and a thought, you know, the fear of what, the, the awe and fear of what's so beautiful that I have to be very backed up, again, uh, surrendering my ego so that I can witness and participate in the right way in what's occurring, and particularly in when I'm trying to talk to my wife, and it's hard to speak because we're not in harmony. I have to have a lot of um, surrendering my ego and I shake, and it's very difficult to stay in dialogue and not shut down. Uh, it's happening a little bit right now, so yeah. Okay, well, thank you for bringing this up, and it's a good, good thing for us to keep in mind that there is something awesome about this whole thing. I obviously yes. have some advocates here. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to um, one yeah. part of your definition of love is acceptance. Yes. So loving somebody unconditionally is accepting. At what, how do, with a significant other, how do you balance the acceptance and how do you balance um, noticing the behaviors and idiosyncrasies that um, perhaps are uncomfortable for you to observe or experience. Um, mm -hmm. I think about raising an adolescent and being told you need to pick your battles. <laughs> so Good point. if you okay. don't want to change somebody, how do you um, accept those idiosyncrasies and behaviors that aren't as comfortable for you? Okay, good question. Um, so, of course, love couldn't be anything but unconditional. If it's conditional, then it has more to do with um, you're having to pay a certain price and please the other. So, it's unconditional in how we hold it for the other. But it's highly conditional in how we design our life with the other. I'll use a simple example. Mm -hmm. So you're an alcoholic and who won't go to the program and you're continually abusive and I certainly still love you, but we can't live together because it's too dangerous for me and the children. So until you get help, it has to look like this, but I continue to hold you in my heart. That'll be hard for a big ego to accept, but it's the only way to go. So an adult 
loves unconditionally while being conditional about the type of commitment. The commitment is conditional, the love is unconditional. So I hold you in the loving kindness practice, but the way I design my life with you has to be based on your behavior, conditioned by your behavior. It can't be unconditional. I can't disregard <coughs> your abuse or your unwillingness to work on things, which is the equivalent of not really being with you. I can't disregard that in the way I design the commitments that I have to you. Does this make sense, everybody? So that's the distinction I would make. And I think it really helps because it clarifies uh, how you could still care, caring connection, you could still care but change the way the connection happens. And that's going to take a lot of courage. Because most of us are used to putting up with abuse, just staying with it. Uh, in another poem, Emily Dickinson uh, uses the metaphor of the two different kinds of birds. And of course, She's from Massachusetts, so <clears throat> the, the beautiful colored birds, as soon as they get a little whiff of winter, fly to Santa Barbara. <laughs> and the little sparrows stay put. They go through the whole winter right there. So this poem is called, um, Tis Not That Dying. Tis not that dying, tis not that dying hurts us so, tis living hurts us more. But dying is a different way, a kind behind the door. So now she's going to describe what dying is like in a relationship. But it's not going to be clear, it's behind the door. Dying is a different way, a kind behind the door. The southern custom of the bird that ere the frosts are due, accepts a better latitude. We are the birds that stay. The shiverers round farmers' doors, for whose reluctant crumb we stipulate, till pitying snows persuade our feathers home. So, you know, we're the ones who... We're the ones who hang around here and we're, you know, hoping that, that that stingy Yankee farmer will throw out a few crumbs until the snow itself convinces us we have to hide. So, so you have to ask yourself, am I a bird that stays or am I a bird who accepts a better latitude? Let me find some place where it is enjoyable. Okay, let's have one other question. Lindsay.
Okay, we'll make this our last question, and then I have one final thing. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. So um, this is this came up a little while ago, also about like conditional and unconditional, and when you're uh, dealing with love for a person who has some kind of um, challenging issue going on and the example keeps being like substance abuse and I'm wondering and like that's a really easy example to talk about because it's like commonly understood to be harmful mm. but I'm I'm wondering how this applies to something where it's not clear that that thing is harmful maybe that person doesn't even think it's harmful or doesn't admit that it's harmful or it's not like something as obvious as substance abuse and then how does this conditionality of love in how we design our life with that person when they're or we just perceive or whatever they're dealing with like a, a subjective problem um like how does judgment play into that because i think i feel a little fear about like applying this to some relationships where i'm like well it feels a little bit like holding that love hostage you know dependent on your, like, you're going to continue to behave this way, and so I'm going to have to dis design my life in a certain way. But, like, I'm just, I, f I feel afraid of judgment in there and acceptance and how those play together when it's not something so obvious. So this is where compassion would come in. Compassion is the link between these two. So I still feel compassion for your predicament. But given the way it is, my compassion for myself does not allow me to stay put. That's one part of it. And the other is to look for help from a third party, such as a therapist, so that there might be a forum in which it is safe to look at something between us go into the feelings, and see if we can come up with an agreement for change. And it's a very big challenge because it's hard for us to change. Well, I wanted to uh, be sure to end with my sharing of my last page in the book, in the, yeah, in the epilogue. I'm on 226. And before I do, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for this wonderful long conversation in which we were helping each other find out more about what love is and how far it could extend and how deep it could extend down into ourselves. Not just extend far out to all beings, like in the loving-kindness practice. This is a new angle. Instead of just saying, I want my love to extend to everyone, now it's also, I want my love to extend into the depths of myself, and I trust that there will always be white rabbits to lead me there. <laughs> sometimes there are people, sometimes there are needs and fantasies. But there's always something that could take you there. 
That is the most beautiful of all the synchronicities about our human life. So, in our most unsettled, ungrounded state, we can draw new remedies from our wounds, new structures of strength from the rubble of our predicaments. This is the alchemy of the human condition. In the crucible of our collapses, dislocations, injuries, and miseries, there is gold to be found in the lead that weighed us down. All it takes is our unconditional yes, and our next chapter, the one in which we find ourselves and our serenity, will start all by itself. This time, we will be on a new path one with encouragement because we are acting with self-support, power because we are embracing our defenselessness and liveliness because we are no longer threatened by any encounter. Dogen Zenji, the founder of the Buddhist Soto Zen school, wrote, Even in the muddiest puddle, the entire full moon is reflected. So after all that has happened to us, no matter how disheartening, the full moon of love within us can still shine. Life experiences can rob us of serenity. What people do to us can hurt our hearts. Distressing events can pile up on us. Griefs can weigh us down. We can make one mistake after another, even repeat the same ones. But nothing can divest us of our capacity to love. We were designed for love, and with practice, we can display it. Daredevils like us will certainly keep chancing love's radical, reckless, and resounding leap. Thank you. Do you have an announcement? No announcements. Okay. I just want to see credits. You want to get see credits? Uh, you want to win? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.